From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Dylan Hall. We'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we're bringing you a piece in memoriam of Bill Lishman, the man whose story many of you will know from the movie Fly Away Home. But before we get to that, here come some environmental news headlines. announced that it's beginning the process of divestment from fossil fuel and oil companies. The city is beginning by divesting pension funds, about $5 billion of which are currently invested in fossil fuel industries. New York was devastated by Hurricane Sandy in 2012 and expects continued damages from rising sea levels and more intense storms due to anthropogenic climate change. The city is looking to the fossil fuel industry to be accountable for their culpability in the climate crisis and so, in addition to divestment, the city has taken legal action to sue BP, ExxonMobil, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, and Shell, the five largest fossil fuel producers in the world, for damages caused by a changing climate. These big oil and gas companies have been accused of being aware of climate change and the predicted effects before it even became a public issue, and have been downplaying and denying climate change in public. Divestment is based on the premise that investments should be made into industries that are ethically sound and sustainable. The global movement to divest from fossil fuels saw quite a bit of attention in the past five years, but this current move is unprecedented because New York is so prominent in the global economy. This financial and legal action against these major industries responsible for climate change might prompt other cities to do the same and increase the pressure for a greater shift towards an investment in renewable and sustainable energy sources. In fishing news, three marine refuges have been created just off the coast of Nunavut and Newfoundland and Labrador, and these will have, quote, a lasting contribution to marine conservation in Canada, end quote, as was announced by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans on December 21st. These seven new marine refuges will contribute an additional 145,598 square kilometers of protected ocean area to Canada's coasts, increasing protected areas by 2.53% to 7.775%. The protection of ecologically sensitive seafloor areas is key to preserving marine biodiversity, as many marine species rely on the habitat created by species such as corals, sponges, and sea pens, which are those freaky corals that look like ferns. Refuges are being enforced through a ban of bottom trawling, the dragging of fishing boats, and all bottom contacting fishing activities. This conservation success is being celebrated, and the government is praised for its collaborative approach with the fishing organizations in creating the refuges. If you would like more information about either of these stories, please visit our website for links to longer news articles.
On December 30, 2017, Bill Lishman passed away at the age of 78 after a battle with leukemia. Bill was an eccentric artist who created humongous sculptures of Stonehenge and the lunar landing. In 1978, Bill began flying ultralight aircrafts. One day, Bill was flying low over a field and startled a flock of ducks. The ducks took off and were suddenly all around him in his ultralight, flying with him. The thrill he experienced from flying with those ducks never wore off. That moment inspired him, and Bill came up with the idea of helping Canadian geese migrate by flying with them as the lead bird. He enlisted the help of his friend Joe Duff, a photographer and fellow ultralight flyer. Together, they attempted their first migration with geese in 1993. The migration was dependent on the birds imprinting on Bill, a process in which goslings become attached to the first moving object they see, which is normally their mother. After that first successful migration, Bill and Joe co-founded Operation Migration together to continue their work on aircraft-guided bird migration. Since then, Operation Migration has graduated from leading Canadian geese to leading the endangered whooping crane on their migratory route. If Bill's story sounds familiar, it's probably because of the 1996 movie Fly Away Home, which starred Jeff Daniels as Bill and was nominated for an Academy Award. Bill and Joe were both very involved with the making of that movie and actually trained the geese used in it. This week, I was able to speak to Joe about their story, Operation Migration, and Bill's legacy. Great. Well, thank you again so much for agreeing to speak with me. Yeah, no problem. It's my pleasure. So could you just start by um, introducing yourself? Uh, yeah, my name is Joe Duff. I'm the um, CEO of Operation Migration and the co-founder. Um, Operation Migration is a, a Canadian and a U.S. nonprofit that um, has been uh, working to safeguard whooping cranes from extinction. Great. And so could you start by um, explaining how you met Bill Lishman? Uh, initially, um, we were just both flyers. Um, Bill was uh, one of the first ultralight flyers in Canada way back when. I was a commercial photographer in downtown Toronto specializing in cars. If you, you, know, you go to buy a car and they give you one of those glossy brochures, that's what I did. And um, uh, I was a pilot, an ultralight pilot, and uh, we just, it was a very small community, so that's how we met. It was probably back in the late 80s. Right, and so then I guess Bill became interested in helping birds migrate. Could you talk a bit about how he became interested in that? Well, yes. Um, there was a gentleman in, in our hometown around Port Perry, um, in Ontario, named uh, William Carrick. And William was a, a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker, and he, he's done a number of wildlife documentaries. Uh, he's got a great one about beavers, and he shot underwater. And he was also doing one with, about Canada geese, and he wanted to get some in-flight shots of birds, like up close, that nobody would seen before. So he tried building a wind tunnel, and, of course, the birds did fly in it, but the problem is your background is the other part of the wind tunnel, and birds fly at a funny angle in a wind tunnel. So then he developed the idea of uh, imprinting. Uh, birds like uh, Canada geese will imprint on their parent or the first thing that nurtures them, and they're instinctively drawn to follow it. So Bill would imprint all these Canada geese. Uh, uh, Bill Carrick would imprint all these Canada geese, and then he'd take them out in his boat, 
taxi out to the middle of the lake and then start the boat up and run out about 30 miles an hour and the birds would come fly right beside them. Hmm. They'd just lock onto them and you could touch their wings even. They were so close. And Bill Lishman saw Bill Carrick's um, experiment and said, well, my airplane flies at the same speed. I wonder if we could do it from an airplane. So he worked for a number of years and then in, in 1988 he was successful in actually flying with a, with a flock of birds. And I think at that point it was really a novelty, you know. It was just something that was cool to do and and uh, something he'd always wanted to try. And so, um, and it was, the, you know, the epitome of grassroots flying. So he did a little video called um, Come On Geese, which is what you say to the birds a lot when you're uh, working with them. Come on, geese, come on, geese. And they imprint on your voice as well as your body. And so this little video was, uh, you know, all homespun. He did it himself, handheld cameras, but it was such an, an incredible um, experience, you know, actually seeing birds fly up tight, up close with an aircraft that it won a bunch of international awards. And it eventually landed in the hands of Dr. George Archibald. Dr. George Archibald is probably the world's leading expert on cranes, and um, he is the co-founder of the International Crane Foundation in uh, Baraboo, Wisconsin. And for a number of years, people had been trying to determine um, how you could make uh, reintroduce whooping cranes. Birds like whooping cranes and swans and geese are what we call precocial birds. When they're hatched, it's usually in a nest on the ground, and they leave the nest almost immediately. They aren't like a robin that stays in the nest, you know, it, it doesn't have any feathers and it can't see. And, relies completely on the parent until it can fly away and then it goes off on its own. Precocial birds um, leave the nest almost immediately. They can walk shortly after hatching and they follow the parents and the parents teach them how to eat and how to forage and how to avoid predators. And um, so it's critical that the bird stay close to the parent and that's where that's how imprinting evolves. Mm-hmm. And so um, birds like whooping cranes uh, uh, imprint and uh, and they learn to migrate by following the parent generation. Well, back in the 1940s, whooping cranes were down to only 15 individuals. That's all that existed, and um, and of course the populations that once migrated over most of North America were gone. They were wiped out in the 1870s, and there was only one flock left that migrated from north of you, very close to Edmonton, actually, the Wood Buffalo National Park, all the way down to the Gulf Coast of Texas. And so the idea was to try to establish a new flock, but there was nobody to teach them how to migrate. So that's where this idea evolved. And in 1993, um, Bill asked if I would join him. And at that point, I was becoming kind of bored with my photography career and looking for an adventure. So I joined him. And we did the first human-guided migration. We led 18 Canada geese from Ontario down to Virginia. Sixteen of those birds survived the winter on their own, and 13 came back the following spring um, to Ontario. And so it proved that, that we could actually lead a migration and the birds would learn it. And so then became, began a long process of, uh, of working with um, uh, Canada geese and trumpeter swans and then eventually sandhill cranes. Sandhill cranes are a crane species, but they're not, they're not endangered. There's, uh, there's lots of sandhill cranes around. And so um, that's how it evolved. And then uh, uh, Columbia Pictures uh, saw one of the, uh, our uh, newscasts, you know, it was covered by, the first one was covered by, um, uh, by 2020. And, um, and so uh, Columbia Pictures uh, 
then decided to make the movie Fly Away Home. So Bill and I formed a company called In the Sky Productions, and we sold Columbia the rights to do it, and we provided uh, all the flying and all the training and all the permits and um, even a little bit of the cinematography. And Bill acted as a, um, as a double in the movie for uh, Jeff Daniels, who played the lead. Um, and, and the story was basically based on, on Bill's life. So thereafter, we kind of moved on and eventually started working with Whooping Crane. Hmm. It's a yeah. long, convoluted story, isn't it? It's not easy to tell. <laughs> it's really interesting, though. Um, to go back to that first migration in 1993 with the uh, Canada geese, could you just describe for me what it was like to fly with these geese? Well, it was an incredible feeling to fly with birds. Um, you know, they're just... Um, you know, they've been migrating for millions of years, you know, and, and the migration route that has evolved, I mean, it probably evolved from, you know, the cycles of the ice ages. Birds would move north and then get forced south again, and so who knows how it evolved, but it has evolved for millions of years. But it only exists in, in, the, in the minds and the memories of the birds that use it, and they pass it on to their offspring. And so, you know, here we are, uh, we're working with with young birds, young of your birds, they're goslings or, or chicks, and, and so they never experienced the migration route. It's a big adventure for them. They've never learned that. Yet it's a traditional route that may have existed for millions of years. And so um, it's, it's really hard to describe what it's like to fly with birds. But first of all, you're, you're, uh, you do it in calm air first thing in the morning when it's cold and the air is very calm and there's no wind. And um, we do it in the fall, so we generally follow the colors south. You know, so as, the, as the fall colors, um, the forests turn red, we're following that south. Um, we do it at low level, and we're flying in an open aircraft at about 38 miles an hour. And we might get up to 1,000 or 2,000 feet. So you can, you can smell the crops, you can smell the wood smoke. And, uh, and, and of course, you fly through the heartland of America. You know, with whooping cranes, we did it for um, 15 years from Wisconsin down to Florida. Every year, we'd laid a new generation south and building up the population. And it's it's a really hard thing to explain because the birds are, are looking to you for security. You know, if they get nervous, they move closer. And as an example, you know that Canada geese fly in a V. Mm-hmm. And they do that because it's easier. The lead bird is doing all the work, and they're creating a little wake off their wingtip. Every time they push their wingtip down, a little wake is created, kind of like the wake behind a boat. And the next bird is um, instinctively knows that if they fly on that wingtip, they can get pulled along. And so it's kind of like if you were to surf on the wake of a boat. If you were a good surfer, you could actually get pulled along by that wake. It's the same thing that race car drivers, when they slipstream, they tuck in behind the other car, and bicycle racers do it too. They tuck in behind. And so birds instinctively learn that. So you might have a long line of birds right off the wingtip with the lead bird maybe only four inches from the wingtip. And and you're cruising along at a 1,000 feet, and the bird's just gliding on the wingtip, and there's a whole long string of them behind you. And You do it when the sun is coming up, which kind of backlights the fog, you know, in the fields and and, uh, maybe the frost on the ground. And you have these incredibly beautiful birds and you're in this three-dimensional element that's so hard to explain. 
it's just a, it's a spectacular feeling. You know, you, you feel responsible for the birds. Uh, you feel part of them. When we did the whooping crane project, we did it in full costume, which means that we wore a big baggy white costume. Uh, it, fabric covered our helmets. We looked through a mylar visor so the birds couldn't see our eyes. The costume covered our whole body down to our calves, covers our hands. And, uh, and, and that costume is designed to disguise the human form. So even though we work with the birds every day, they do not become familiar with people. Hmm. By the time our birds were uh, hatched and moved out to Wisconsin and trained over the whole summer and ate, learned to fly and then followed us through about two months to get from Wisconsin to Florida, they would have never heard a human voice, never seen a building or a car up close, never seen a normally dressed person. So once they're released into the wild and they encounter their first person, normally dressed, who's talking, then um, then they're afraid of them. So, you know, if you would approach one of our birds, it would fly away just the same as a wild bird would. So when you wear that costume, you get admitted into their social structure. Uh, every creature has, you know, a um, um, different personality, even though whooping cranes all look the same, they're considerably different. There are dominant ones and subservient ones and and brave ones and shy ones, and, and, and you get to learn that personality, and you get to be a part of it. They admit you into their social structure, and it's a, it's a rare privilege to, you know, it's amazing what you can learn if you stop and pretend to be a bird. Um, you can learn all of their um, their uh, language. I mean, they do have a language. For instance, with whooping cranes, there's about 50 calls, displays, postures, or behaviors we know the meaning of. So you can walk into the pen and you can tell which bird is kind of sizing you up to figure out where he fits in the dominant structure or which one you know, is, is hiding behind you because that one over there is picking on him or which one is begging for food or which one just wants to be close to you. You know, you can... You can fit into that structure, and, it, and it's, it's an amazing feeling. It's just hard to describe. Why whooping cranes in particular? Well, <laughs> it's really, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you start working with a creature, and first thing you know, you're passionate about it, and then the, horse, you know, the bird has eventually changed your life. That's what happens. It happens to people who work with wolves and bears and all kinds of creatures. And it happened to us with whooping cranes. Whooping cranes were one of the most critically endangered birds in North America. In the world, there are 15 uh, species of cranes, 11 of which are endangered. In Canada and the U.S., we have the most plentiful of all the cranes, which is the sandhill crane. And we have the most endangered, which is the whooping crane. Back in the 1940s, there were only 15 birds. That's all that existed. So. I also, of course, want to ask about Fly Away Home because many people, many listeners will know Bill and the story of um, your project from that movie. So could you talk a bit about what it was like, you know, working on that movie um, and also how well do you think it portrays Bill in the project? Well, I mean, um, I think it did a fairly good job of portraying Bill. Of course, you know, uh, um, Bill's wife didn't die in a car accident, and his daughter, he does have a daughter, Carmen, uh, you know, wasn't estranged. She didn't live in Australia with her mother and came back to spend time with her father and 
and um, and she didn't fly with birds. But uh, but apart from that, the story is true. Bill was a, an eccentric artist, uh, a very creative person. Um, if you remember the movie, um, he sold a lunar landing module in order to buy an aircraft to do the migration with geese. Well, and that part's true. He did have a lunar landing module, a replica of it. Um, he had a big fire-breathing dragon. Bill was a, a, a sculpture. He and um, and his um, his associate Richard Van Hoovelen built all those all those uh, sculptures that he you know he had a um, he did a movie an IMAX movie years ago called um, The Last Buffalo and uh, built a buffalo that was beautiful all in steel. He and Richard built it and it was you know like a hundred percent, hundred and twenty percent life size. So it was even bigger than a real one. It's gorgeous. Um, he did a movie um, called Titanica, which was a documentary about the sinking of the Titanic. And, of course, on the bottom of the ocean, it's so far down you cannot see it. So Richard built a beautiful replica of the Titanic as it sits on the bottom of the ocean. So you know, he's a very talented, uh, extremely talented man. He lives in an underground house, and, and, uh, and you know, he just... He's not a person that, uh, he, he's not well-educated. He's just a self-made man. Um, people refer to him as a, a, a master jack, you know, the expression uh, jack of all trades. Well, um, they refer to Bill as master of multiple trades. You know, he's done a lot of stuff. He's built underground houses and flown airplanes and made videos and and, uh, and uh, made sculptures and just a, a, a well-rounded, talented guy. Mm-hmm. Um, that one of the funny things was that, uh, you know, I guess Hollywood is, is uh, um, kind of used to uh, just getting what they need. And so, um, you know, if they set their schedule and that's how it works. Well, um, in, um, when, they, when we did uh, Fly Away Home, the geese hatch in the spring and they learn to fly by August and they migrate in the fall. And there's nothing that you can do about that. You know, if you have lots of money, you can't, I'm sorry, I'm going to hatch geese in the fall and migrate in the spring. Well, it doesn't work that way. And so I think when we first started Columbia, we were kind of shocked and thought, well, we're going to do this movie over a year and a half. But they realized, no, it would have to be at least two years if you're going to do two cycles. So you better get it all done in one. <laughs> so so they had to really scramble to, um, to get ready to shoot by early spring when the eggs were hatching. And then... Um, get ready to do all the aerial scenes in August and, uh, and and pretend to do the migration, you know, in September and October before it got too cold and there was snow on the ground. So um, it was interesting to see even, you know, Hollywood kind of say, okay, well, nature is not going to let us change this, so we have to live with it. So mm-hmm. it was fun to do that. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember um, learning about the story and watching the movie when I was, I think, in elementary school. Um. <laughs> <laughs> a long time ago now. That was 1995. We shot it in 96. It was released. So that's a long time ago. <laughs> Finally, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, with Bill's passing, what legacy you think that he leaves behind? Well, I, I certainly think that, um, that um, you know, he was the one who had the nerve and the willingness and the and the ideas and the gumption to to first fly with birds. You know, I, and and there's a lot of flying with birds going on right now. That people are you know doing it 
in Europe. They were working with bald ibis, and that all started because Bill was the first person to do that. And we have birds migrating in the eastern uh, flyway in the United States and Canada because of what Bill started years ago. You know, it took a tremendous amount of work. Fish and Wildlife had to get involved, and Operation Migration had to carry on, and, and uh, we had four pilots uh, and, you know, teams of 10 to 12 people, you know, plus all of the support people where the chicks were hatched and all of our stopover hosts that allowed us to land on their property and set up pens. And, you know, the migration would take sometimes three months. Um, you see, whooping cranes are, are soaring birds. They would fly like a hawk or an eagle. You know, they'll take off midday and, and um, they'll find thermals and they'll ride the thermals up and then glide to the next one and ride it up. And they can migrate all day without expending much energy. We can't fly like that. We don't have the fuel range to fly all day. So we learned to fly, or our, we would fly with our birds first thing in the morning, right at sunrise when the air was cold and dead calm. And so the birds would then learn to fly right off the wingtip. So the lead bird was inches from the wingtip, and they would glide along riding on the aircraft. That could only happen until it started to get bumpy. You know, the thermals and the wind would pick up, and, uh, and the airplane would bounce around a little bit, and the bird would spend so much time chasing the wing that he wasn't getting any benefit out of it, weren't gliding. And they're not designed to flap their wings forever, so 45 minutes later they'd be tired. So we would get maybe one, two sometimes three hours first thing in the morning. Birds fly at 38 miles an hour, so you're lucky to get 100 miles, and the migration was 1,200 miles long. So, And we could only do it on days when it wasn't raining or when we didn't have high winds. And so sometimes it would take um, three months to get the migration done. So we had stopover hosts about every 50 miles that were, you know, I always say it was kind of like the worst mother-in-law story because, um, you know, they knew we were coming, and they'd agreed to allow us to come there. And, and, of course, we would park motorhomes in their front yard and airplanes in the backyard, and we'd tap into their power and sometimes their water, and, boy, that shower looked nice. And, and um, that where the pen is, where the birds are, you can't go down there anymore because they're not allowed to see humans. And, um, and of course, you know, we don't know where we're going to arrive, but we also don't know where we're going to leave. We could be here tomorrow and gone the next day, or we could be here for a week waiting for the weather to improve. So I always said you know, those people deserved a huge amount of thanks. And, you know, it was Bill who started this whole idea. Um, and and um, it took a lot of people to bring it to fruition, but I think, you know, his memorial is, in part, his memorial is the swooping cranes that are migrating back and forth. His memorial is the movie Fly Away Home, which is now kind of a classic. I mean, you still see it on TV occasionally. Um, so there's a lot of memorials to Bill. He's, um, he's got a lot of sculptures um, that he and Richard Van Hooveland did that are all over um, North America. And that will remain, you know. So there's a, lot, uh, there's a lot that the world has to be thankful for Bill Lisbon for. Great. Well, thank you so much. That is all the questions I had, um, unless there was anything you wanted to add. No, except that if anybody's interested, you can uh, check Operation Migration's website, which is, um, you know, operationmigration.org. That was me, Sophia Osborne, interviewing Joe Duff about his memories of the late Bill Lishman and Operation Migration, the organization they founded together. Really awesome story, Sophia. Thanks for that. If you want to hear even more stories like that, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. And while you're there, look for the survey tab in the menu. 
We would love to get to know our listeners and what you enjoy about the show. Your input can influence the content we gather over the next year. What do you care about? What do you want to know about? Degrowth economies? The secret lives of tuna? More focus on indigenous resurgence? Or do you really care about sea pens? Let us know! You can email us at terra at cjsr.com or tweet us at terrainforma or visit us at terrainforma.ca. And that's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. Thanks this week to our contributors, Ashley Couches, Amanda Rooney, Sydney Carbonic, Carter Grozitsa, and Shelley Jodwin. We've been your hosts, Dylan Hall and Sophia Osborne. Catch you next week. Um, could you just tell me what you ate for breakfast? <laughs> oh, I think I had uh, cornflakes and honey bunches of oats mixed together with a few raisins. That was my breakfast this morning. <laughs> mm, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs>